Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquity, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pits, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning for your abundant goodness, for your steadfast love for your people, love that condescended from heaven to redeem your people. Help us, O Lord, by the Holy Spirit, be renewed today in in the worship and reading of your word. Lord, you are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we praise you that you do not deal with us according to our sins, nor do you repay us according to our iniquities. Praise be to you, O God, for the forgiveness that you so freely give. Father, we give you praise for growing our body this morning through new members joining us and through the baptisms that we've just witnessed. Father, we pray that we as a body will welcome these new believers into our fold and will be your hands and feet in their walk. Father, you show compassion and righteousness to your children, so today we come before you interceding on behalf of some of our members who are walking through particular moments of need. Father, we uh, lift up Bill Hay and Cindy. We give you praise for Bill and his many years of service to us, your body here at Covenant, Father, but also to the kingdom, your kingdom around the world. We ask for your loving kindness to surround Bill and Cindy as she cares for him. Likewise, Father, we lift up Hannah and Jesse Scroggins and for Levi and Teddy and Eleanor and the loss of their baby, Hunt Andrew Scroggins. We also lift up Molly and John Stone and Ellaby and Bailey and Pryor and the loss of Molly and John's nephew, Garrison. Wrap your arms of compassion around them, Father. And for the Scroggins, the Stones, and the Childers family, Father, we ask that when their days are dark and despair creeps in, Father, that you will renew them by your Spirit. Remind them that you are acquainted with grief. You know the anguish of their hearts, but it is your steadfast love and mercy that walk with them, that carry them, and that hold them and unite them with you in Christ. Father, we pray for all the ways in which the gospel goes forward here at Covenant Presbyterian Church through our ministry partners and our staff. And Father, we give you praise for each of them. We lift up our staff as they prepare this week for Wednesday night activities to begin. And likewise, we pray for our mission partners, J.T. Gilbert and Michael Alsop at RUF International in Auburn as classes start back this week. We ask that your people be renewed both near and far through the teaching of your word and the gathering of your people this week. Father, now prepare our hearts to receive your word this morning, preached by Reverend Fountain. We ask that all of these prayers be lifted up in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Covenant Church. If you're visiting here with us this morning, you're a guest, we are especially glad to have you here with us. Uh, Today, in the church calendar, if you go in for such things, uh, is the first Sunday of the season of Epiphany. Uh, The church calendar begins the four weeks, the four Sundays before Christmas with Advent. It's sort of a season of uh, waiting and anticipation, as we remember that God's people of old waited for the Messiah to come, and, and we are waiting for him to come back. 
Advent ends with the nativity of our Lord. Christmas, we celebrate his birth. We celebrate the incarnation. And Christmas is actually not just one day. It's 12 whole days, Christmas tide, which means you can keep your Christmas tree up until at least January 6th if you want to. Longer than that, I don't know. Uh, and so today is the first Sunday of uh, Epiphany, the season after that. It's also Elvis's birthday, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but the season of Epiphany, Epiphany comes from a Greek word uh, that means something like making known or appearance or manifestation or revelation. Uh, and so the season of Epiphany uh, is a time when we recognize uh, God making known Jesus. And there's a few things that uh, that encompasses in the scriptures. It begins with uh, the wise men uh, following the star. We sang about that earlier to come and see Jesus, this one who was born king of the Jews. And the wise men were Gentiles. They were pagans. And so what we see there is that uh, this Jesus who's born king of Israel is also king of the nations. That's made known to us uh, in Epiphany. We also remember, uh, and this uh, is celebrated or observed today, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is baptized. And you remember at that baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And the voice of the Father declares, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And so it's made known to us that Jesus isn't just a great king, but he's the son of the most high. He's the son of God. And then Epiphany also encompasses uh, Jesus' first manifestation of his glory to the disciples. And we remember this uh, in this scene in Cana in John chapter 2 where Jesus is at a wedding party, you remember? They run out of wine and he turns the water into wine. And uh, John tells us that in this, his glory is made known to his disciples. So this is a season of making known who Jesus is. We're going to return today to our study in the Gospel of Mark. We took a break for Advent and we looked at some passages uh, in Isaiah. And our sermon text today uh, isn't part of the traditional Epiphany readings, but in some ways it really could be, uh, because our passage today is all about Jesus making himself known. Uh, It's all about seeing Jesus clearly. And the whole Gospel of Mark and the whole ministry of Jesus has been sort of leading forward thus far to this sort of uh, crisis moment of seeing clearly who Jesus is. And you remember Jesus has asked his disciples a number of times, uh, do you not yet understand? Don't you see? Don't you see who I am? That's what he's asking them. And they're going to see clearly today who Jesus is. And we get invited into this amazing, beautiful moment to also see clearly who Jesus is. And so as we come to our passage today, here's what we're going to see clearly. That Jesus is the Christ. That he is God's chosen one. That he is the Messiah. And if we see clearly who Jesus is, uh, we're also going to see something about ourselves. Because if Jesus is the Christ, if Jesus is the Messiah, then he calls us to follow him as disciples. So let's tune to our text today. You have this printed before you in the worship guide. Uh, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. And they, who is Jesus and the disciples, came to Bethsaida. 
And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you for this morning, for a day uh, set apart for worship and mercy and good deeds. We thank you for your scriptures, uh, your word, and the way they make uh, plain to us Uh, and show us clearly who Jesus is. And we pray that you would open our eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts uh, to do that very thing this morning, to see Jesus as the Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, So the first thing we'll see in our text uh, clearly uh, is that to see Jesus clearly is to confess him as the Christ. And there's two elements of that we're going to look at. First, to confess Jesus as the Christ means to see him as an exalted king. But it also means to see him as a suffering servant. Now before we get to that, this passage begins with a a really interesting uh, moment, this sort of healing miracle of Jesus uh, that's meant to teach us something. It sort of frames the rest of the passage for us. It's very uh, unique healing in that it's a two-stage healing. So Jesus heals this man and he sees, but not clearly. And you remember the disciples have not seen clearly up until this point. They're getting things, but they're not seeing clearly. And then Jesus touches the man a second time, and he does see clearly. And that sort of is what frames this passage. We're going to see the disciples uh, see Jesus. 
But then they don't quite see him clearly yet. And Jesus has to give them, as it were, a second touch. And so this confession uh, we see Peter make is the first element of that. And Jesus takes his disciples uh, far away from home, probably further than any of them had ever been before, uh, to a place called Caesarea Philippi, uh, which was sort of a hotbed of um, pagan worship. There were temples to Baal there. There were temples to a god called Pan there. Uh, And so this is where Jesus takes them for this sort of crucial moment. Uh, And he asks the disciples, first off, this diagnostic question, who do other people say that I am? And there was a lot of popular opinion about who Jesus was in his day. He was well known as a teacher and a miracle worker. And so there were lots of thoughts about who he was. And they tell him, this is what other people are saying. Some people are saying you're John the Baptist, somehow raised from the dead. Uh, Some people are saying you're Elijah. Elijah, uh, we're told in Malachi, was to come as sort of a forerunner to the coming of the Lord. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets, uh, an authoritative teacher sent from God, uh, or maybe a very particular prophet that had been promised would come in Deuteronomy 18, one who would be like Moses, who God's people were to listen to. So there's a lot of popular opinion about who Jesus is. And then he turns the finger to the apostles, and to Peter in particular, and calls the question. That's what they're saying, but who do you say that I am? And again, this is such a crucial moment in Mark's gospel and in the life of disciples and on all of our lives, really. This question of who do you say Jesus is? The other gospel writers will tell us that in this moment, there's a divine revelation that takes place. The father himself reveals to Peter who Jesus is. His eyes are open. His ears are unstopped. His heart is made soft and he sees who Jesus is. And he makes this confession, which is the bedrock of the church of Jesus Christ. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God's anointed and chosen one. You are the Christ. Peter takes together everything that he's seen about Jesus so far, that he's one who has authority to teach God's word. He has authority to cast out demons. He has authority to command the wind and the waves. The creation itself obeys this Jesus. He has the authority to forgive sins, something that God alone has the authority to do. Peter takes all of this that he's seen and he takes everything he knows from the Old Testament scriptures that there was prophesied one who was going to come, a prophet like Moses. He takes what he knows from Psalm 2 that there's a king who's going to come who will be the son of God who will rule over the nations and crush God's enemies. He knows in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God had promised there would be a king from the line of David who would always sit on the throne of Israel. So he takes all this And he puts it together in this beautiful moment. And he says, that's who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. He sees. But it's interesting because he doesn't see it quite clearly yet. He doesn't understand all of what that means. Partially because he had been shaped himself by the popular opinions of the day. And there were a lot of expectations about what this Messiah would be like. Namely, that he would be 
uh, a military ruler, a political ruler, that he would come uh, and reestablish Israel as a nation state, that he would overthrow the Roman government. Uh, And so it's very likely that Peter is thinking these things about Jesus, that he's come to overthrow the Romans and reestablish Israel. Uh, He's come to save God's people from tyranny and oppression. And he's not entirely wrong about that. Because Jesus, as the exalted king, will come and will do those things. He will come as a redeemer to free God's people from tyranny and oppression. But what Peter's missing here, I think, is that he's come to free us from the tyranny and oppression, not just of powers of this world, but of the power uh, of sin. And so Jesus gives him here a second touch, and he helps him to understand that there's more to the Christ than what he has imagined so far. And you see that in verse 31, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man, uh, Jesus' favorite title for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, all the religious authorities of his day, uh, and be killed, and yet he would be raised again. Uh, Jesus is predicting his suffering, his, we call his passion, his humiliation, his death, and then his resurrection, then his exaltation. So what Jesus does here is he takes all the things that Peter's got right about who the Christ is, all these uh, strands of texts that run throughout the Old Testament that point forward to the Messiah. And he said, there's some other texts you need to bring in here, some other things that you've missed about who the Messiah is. And so he, uh, Jesus is thinking here maybe about texts like Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my groaning? He's saying this is also the Messiah. Maybe he's thinking of passages like Isaiah 53 that we just studied in our Advent series. That this servant of the Lord uh, would be a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, despised, rejected by men, smitten, stricken by God, and afflicted. Who would be crushed for the iniquities of God's people. That the chastisement that would bring peace for God's people, real freedom from oppression, uh, would be laid upon the Messiah, the Christ. So he's saying there's more to it. You've got to see this too. Because the path to Jesus as our exalted uh, king uh, is through his suffering as a servant, through his humiliation. And it is very interesting to draw some attention to this uh, title that Jesus uses of himself, the Son of Man, which he's using interchangeably with Christ. Uh, And what does this mean? Well, on one level, Son of Man just means a human. It just means he was a man, a son of Adam. But you remember our reading from Daniel earlier. Daniel sees in this vision, he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
there's this interesting divine figure whom God the Father gives a kingdom, whom God the Father shares glory with, God who shares glory with no one. Jesus is saying, this is me, a human, and yet somehow God the Son, this eternal divine figure. And the chief priests and the scribes, the religious folks, when Jesus applied this title to him, especially at his trial, they understood clearly what he was saying. And that's why he's tried and found guilty of blasphemy and executed. Because he was saying, I'm divine. I am deity. The fullness of God dwells in me. And friends, this is what it means for us to see Jesus clearly, to confess him as the Christ. An exalted king who for us and for our salvation came down, was incarnate, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered for us, was crucified for us, raised from the dead for us, who even now sits at the Father's right hand and will return for us. To see Jesus clearly is to confess him as your Savior as your Christ, as your Messiah. And maybe there are some of you here who've never done that. You have never seen Jesus clearly. And I have prayed for you, whoever you are. There's somebody in here. I've been praying for you all week. That you would see Jesus as the Christ. That you would know him as your Savior. As the God who entered in to the world that he made to save you, his creature, from your sin that you would see him clearly. And a lot of you I know know Jesus. You have confessed him as the Christ. And I've prayed for you this week too, that you would see him more clearly. There's no limit to the depths that we can plumb in our adoration, in our seeing more clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who do you say that Jesus is? There's a lot of popular opinion. When I went to college, I was taught in a history class that Jesus was a failed insurrectionist who was executed for treason. And so those of you who are going to college sometime soon, you need to know that you're going to hear those kind of things, false things about who Jesus is. Popular opinion is not always right. I told you it was Elvis's birthday. This is what Elvis has to say about that. Well, they said you was high class. That was just a lie. You ain't never caught a rabbit. And you ain't no friend of mine. Popular opinion is not always correct. But thankfully, Jesus has made known to us through his word and spirit, his life, who he is. So I invite you to see him clearly today. And if you see Jesus clearly, we also have an opportunity here to see something uh, clear about ourselves that we are called to be his disciples. If we confess Jesus as the Christ, then he calls us to follow him. And you'll see that in our passage beginning in verse 33. And the first thing I want you to notice about this uh, is that you're called to be a disciple, but you're already a disciple of something or someone. Disciples, basically just a learner, could have a more technical sense as a pupil or an apprentice. Uh, but at its core, a pup- uh, disciple is just someone who's being shaped 
by the things around them. And our world is full of discipleship mechanisms. Our world is full of things that are actively uh, shaping your heart, your mind, your affections, your lives. Things that are seeking to conform you into their image. And so it's worth pausing to ask, uh, what are those things in your life? And there are so many of them. But how do your political affiliations shape your heart? How do they disciple you? How does the, the social media that you consume uh, shape you? How does the educational systems of our world, how have they shaped you? Uh, because they do. And you see that right here in Peter, actually. Uh, Peter's been shaped by popular opinion. He's been discipled to think that the Christ is a certain way. And, and even in Jesus' face, when Jesus tells him, this is what it means for me to be the Christ, he says, not you, Lord. He rebukes him because he's been shaped to think about Jesus in a particular way. And Jesus' reaction to this is so strong. Get behind me, Satan. You remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, which Mark doesn't record, but the other gospel authors do. Uh, Satan came to Jesus and tempted him to be an exalted king without the humiliation, to exalt himself without first going to the cross. And he says, that's satanic. He is no Christ without his cross. There is no salvation for God's people without Jesus' cross. And there is no salvation for us without understanding this about the Messiah, that he is the suffering servant. So we're already being discipled, and that's the reality of discipleship. Uh, But there's also a call here to be Jesus' disciple. And he's going to show us what the cost of that is. And I think these are some of the most, um, these are some of the most difficult words in all of scripture. Uh, They're so challenging. He calls his disciples to him and the crowds, and he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would confess me as the Christ, If anyone would trust in me, if anyone would believe that I am who I say I am, let him be my disciple. Let him come after me. Let him follow me. Everyone. He's not saying those of you who are sort of spiritual Navy SEALs, those of you who've particularly got your stuff together, he said everyone. This is a universal call to God's people to be his disciple, to follow after him. And look at how he defines discipleship. He says, come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The way Jesus explains discipleship is self-denial and cross-bearing. And these are, these are shocking words. And you have to try to understand how, how shocking and how in your face this would have been uh, for these disciples and for these crowds. Uh, the cross is an execution device. That's how the Romans tortured and executed criminals. It was a deeply shameful thing to be crucified. It was a deeply painful thing to be crucified. And so I might as well say to you, uh, take up your lethal injections. Take up your electric chair. And let's go follow Jesus. What does that even mean? Sometimes you'll hear the phrase, take up your cross, refers to some, uh, some burden maybe, some difficult circumstance that you have to put up with. Uh, and maybe there are times where that applies, but 
But I think what Jesus is talking about here is a radical allegiance to him. A radical association of our lives with his life. To follow him. The Messiah who would take up his own cross unto death. That we would be willing to follow him even unto death. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Self-denial. Sometimes you'll hear people use this and it means sort of a self-abasement. Sort of a self-denigration. But I don't think that's it. I think this self-denial that Jesus is referring to here is a denial of uh, of self-will, of self-rule. It's a denial of autonomy, of self-centeredness, of self-sufficiency. He's saying, submit your life unto me. I am the Christ, the Son of God. I made you. Submit your life unto my will. You're mine now. I saved you. I bought you with the greatest price. Submit your life to me. And so what this means, I think, is our dreams and our hopes and our desires and our careers and our families and our finances and our free time. All those things belong to Jesus. He says, bring those things to me to do with what I will. We pray, even as Jesus prayed, as he went to the cross to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. This is heavy. Everything you have is his, rightfully his. And that that sounds very heavy-handed, but I also want you to see here, it, it gets a little more heavy than that, but I'll go ahead and give you some good news, that this path of self-denial, this cruciform life of death to self is actually the way to true human flourishing. Uh, This is what humans were created for. You remember Adam and Eve walked on the way with God in the cool of the day. And they rebelled against him. They established a counter kingdom. The temptation in the garden was all about will, was all about autonomy. Satan said, you can be the arbiter of your own destiny. You get to decide what's right and wrong. You get to decide what's good for you. That's what brought humankind into ruin and disaster and sin and mystery is us asserting ourselves, our own will over God's will. And what God does for us in the gospel, when we're made new and given a new spirit and new desires, is he reorients us towards that, our ability Uh, To be human really is renewed. We can obey God. We can submit to his will. And friends, it's like I tell my kids sometimes. Like, you're going to do this instead of that because I know what's better. I I know what's good for you and and you don't. Uh, God knows what's good for us. And we often don't. And so this is the path, actually, of true freedom and true life of loving God and loving neighbor and loving ourselves the way we were created to. He goes on in verse 35, whoever would save his life, whoever would save his soul will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You can get, you can assert yourself, and you can get everything that you think this world has to offer you, everything you ever wanted, Jesus says, and you can lose your soul. You can get everything and then lose it all. But he says if you're willing to lose it all, if you're willing to lay down your life to give it to me, you get everything. You get eternal life. And you get flourishing in this life. Today's the 67th anniversary of the martyrdom of a man named uh, Jim Elliott. Some of you will know this story. Uh, he went to share the gospel with a native tribe in uh, South America, and he was killed. Uh, and his wife, years later, went back down there and sort of reestablished this mission. And people believed, they confessed Jesus was the Christ, and the church grew. Uh, Jim Elliott said before he died, he is no fool who loses what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. Friends, you can get everything and you can lose yourself. You can lose your soul. And so this crisis moment where we can see Jesus clearly, we have that choice to make. Am I going to lose my life for Jesus and for his kingdom? Or am I going to keep it to myself? Am I going to get what I want? It's my own detriment. Cruciform life. And on that judgment day, when Jesus comes in his glory with his angels, what would you give to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant? Instead of depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. What would you trade in that day? You'd trade everything. This issue of discipleship uh, is, a, is a matter of two things here, really. Um, it's an issue of the heart and the issue of habits. Uh, and I'll refer you back to Robbie's sermon from last week uh, about guarding your heart. So I'm going to assume a lot of the things that he said. I'm going to assume you uh, were here last week or you'll go back and listen to that. Uh, because discipleship is a matter of the heart, of guarding our hearts, of guarding our affections. Because what you love, you'll go after. Uh, and one of the ways we guard our hearts is being real honest about what's going on in our hearts. Uh, there's a couple of guys that I'm in a weekly uh, study with. And we're going through this sort of discipleship material. Uh, and one of the questions it asked us the first week, it says, what areas of your life are you compartmentalizing? What areas of your life are you failing, intentionally or not, uh, to submit to the rule of Jesus, your career, your money and possessions, your self-image, your sexual integrity, your leisure time, time management, uh, your marriage, family, or other close relationships, everything. Uh, which of those things are you holding on to telling Jesus, I've got this. I'm not really interested in you being that involved. Uh, guarding your heart happens best, I will tell you, in community. 
Uh, you need other people to ask you these kind of questions. And you need other people that you can be honest with about these type things. What's going on in your heart? Discipleship is also, I would say, a matter of habit. Because we can shape the things that we love. Uh, I used to not love onions. But they're in everything, you know. So I felt like I need to learn how to love onions. So very slowly over time, I discipled myself with my wife's help. She would like sneak onions in a sandwich or something. And uh, I really like onions now. Great in salads and sandwiches and fajitas. Uh, That's discipleship. Power of habit. We can, uh, through intentionally submitting ourselves to God's will, learn to love God's will. And I want to give you, as we close, uh, two concrete opportunities to do that this year. Uh, it's January 8th, Elvis's birthday, as I said, uh, which means a lot of you have already chucked your Bible reading plan for the year. It's okay, because uh, it's not about reading the Bible in a year. Uh, it's about intentionally drawing close to Jesus. It's about regular habits of seeing him more clearly. So I want to encourage you, very concretely, to find a plan some way to do that this year, whether it's a Bible reading plan or a good devotional book. And I know all your pastors would love to help you think through that if you're looking for something. Find a way, a habit, to see Jesus more clearly. It won't feel magic overnight. It's going to feel like a check in a box sometimes. But it's about the cumulative effect of days and weeks and months and years of seeing Jesus more clearly and our hearts warming to him. Second thing Josh has already mentioned today, we're going to start a series on Wednesday about prayer, the grace of prayer. Uh, Your pastor said, hey, this is an area that we want to see Jesus more clearly, and this is an area that we want to grow in. And so let's invite everybody to do that with us. So if you're not accustomed to coming on Wednesday nights, we would love to see you be a part of that and to grow in that with us. And growing in into habits and discipleship, friends, uh, it feels like freedom. It sounds like God's given us a bunch of stuff to do, but what happens when you start doing it is you feel free. It's a beautiful thing. Last thing I want to point out, uh, Jesus closes this section on discipleship uh, by pointing out there's a reward for discipleship you see here. Uh, He tells some of those standing with him that they would not die until they would see the kingdom of God come with power. And this is probably a reference to our text next week, the transfiguration. Jesus takes some of them up on a mountain, uh, and he is revealed in all his glory to them. Uh, And that's sort of a unique one-time event. But I also think, uh, for those of us disciples, uh, we do get these little moments in our lives where we see the kingdom of God come with power, and it is beautiful and it is sweet. We saw a few of them here this morning. Uh, We saw students profess faith, confess Jesus as the Christ. They'll take communion for their first time here today. We saw people uh, pass from death unto life. We saw children baptized. We saw God make promises in time and space that he would be a God to these children. The kingdom of God coming with power. Some of you will remember Sandy Wilson when he was here, our interim senior pastor. Uh, He's telling us a story one time about he was converted a little later in life. He was doing something where he kind of had his head like out a window, and the window fell and cracked him on the head. 
And he was like, it, it didn't occur to me till afterwards that I didn't swear when that happened. It changed heart. Because <laughs> he was used to swearing. <clears throat> I had a meal uh, recently with uh, a man from our church and uh, with tears in his eyes. Uh, he said, you know, I just... I'm not the husband I want to be. I snap at my kids. Um, I want to change. I don't want to be like this anymore. Um, I need guys in my life that I can be honest with, who can hold me accountable. I want to see Jesus more clearly this year. Repentance. It's the kingdom of God coming with power. It's a beautiful thing. Last night while I was finishing this up, my wife asked me to do something with the laundry, and I just did it. And I didn't grumble or complain or anything. And I was like, man, it's the kingdom of God coming with power. It's awesome. Because what the kingdom of God coming with power is all about is changed hearts and changed lives. It's about God making us, conforming us more into the image of his son, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. So we get these little snapshots along the way. But one day at the end of that long obedience in the same direction, will be in the kingdom. In its full manifestation, its full glory. We'll see Jesus for everything that he is in a kingdom that cannot, will not be shaken. And we'll surround his throne with people from every tribe, tongue, nation, worshiping him, declaring that he is worthy. And so friends, a life of discipleship, seeing Jesus clearly, seeing yourself clearly is worth it. Because he's worth it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this Sabbath day. Thank you for showing us who Jesus is. And we thank you for this uh, table, your table, uh, that you invite us to now uh, as a small taste of the kingdom that is to come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.